The Syro-Greeks chose the Sabbath as one of the focuses of their persecution. Similarly, the Romans had mocked the Jewish keeping of the Sabbath. Imagine telling Antiochus or Hadrian that one day Jews from around the world would gather in Athens to mark Shabbat and then return together to a Jewish Jerusalem, Jewish Jerusalem where today candles are kindled to mark the victory over Antiochus. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 275, Heroism and Resurrection. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak again of the story of Hanukkah. In the events leading up to the liberation of Jerusalem by the Hasmoneans and Judah the Maccabee, a phenomenon appeared in Israel, martyrdom. As we have discussed, whereas earlier enemies of Israel targeted the nation as a polity, here the Syrio-Greeks, along with certain Jewish Hellenist allies, focused on the Jewish faith. Thus, the first chapter of the first book of Maccabees describes how Antiochus targeted aspects of observance that were elemental to Jewish identity. Kashrut, circumcision, the Sabbath. There we are told. For the king had sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation, to the end that they might forget the law and change all the ordinances. This is religious persecution. But there were Jews, we are told, who resisted. The book of Maccabees further reports about the Hellenists that, quote, they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised, and they hanged the infants about their necks and rifled their houses and slew them that had circumcised them. Howbeit many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing, wherefore they would rather die than that they might be defiled with meats and that they might not profane the holy covenant. So then they died, and there was very great wrath upon Israel. End quote. Thus, the assault of the Syrio-Greeks marked a new sort of enemy, a new form of persecution. All of Israel's previous enemies were interested first and foremost in political subjugation. But the Greek world presented the first adversary that stressed first and foremost intellectual and spiritual conquest backed up by its hard power. And it is only with this in mind that we can understand why the book of Daniel's depiction and prediction of this age also includes an aspect of Jewish doctrine that is made more explicit in this book than any other. We discussed yesterday Daniel's vision of the future rise of Greece, the splitting of Alexander's empire, and the Seleucid persecution of the Jews. Daniel goes on to describe how, with the assistance of the angel Michael, deliverance will come. Chapter 12. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. This is a reference to the salvation of the Hanukkah story. But then, all of a sudden, Daniel announces something else. He explicitly enunciates that ultimately in the end of days, a resurrection will occur with the righteous rewarded and the wicked punished. It is a tenet of Judaism that this was always part of tradition and that sources for it can be found in the Torah. But in Daniel, we find it stated most clearly. Chapter 12, verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. 
Daniel is then told in verse 4 to not disclose the secrets of the end of days. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel then emphasizes the Jewish doctrine of resurrection. But if resurrection is inherent to Jewish belief, why is it only Daniel at the end of the Bible who states it so openly? Why don't we find it as explicitly stated previously? For Rabbi Yaakov Medan, Daniel is designated as the explicit declarer of resurrection because of what is being described in his vision, the new trials that will arise with the Greek empire of which Daniel speaks. Rabbi Medan writes, quote, It is perhaps for this reason that Daniel is the first to speak openly and explicitly of the resurrection. The death that hovers over Daniel and his three companions, the death that he speaks about during the period of the war waged by the Greeks and the Hellenists against the covenant and commandments of the Torah, is the death of those who defend the covenant. It is a death for the sanctification of God's name. This death must be a temporary death, for God will never abandon his followers, those who forge his covenant through sacrificing their own lives. This would seem to be the meaning of the Kaddish, in which we sanctify God's name specifically in the face of death at the grave. The essence of the Kaddish is the declaration, may his great name be blessed forever and for everlasting eternity. When someone has just died at the meeting point between this world and the next, we declare our faith that God's name is blessed, not only in our world, but also in the other worlds to which the deceased is now moving, worlds which exist forever and also in the world of the resurrection. End quote. To this, I would add one more point. Because the story of Hanukkah that Daniel is predicting involves not only a national, but also a spiritual and philosophical battle, Daniel is ultimately emphasizing in his description of the resurrection what divides ideologically, intellectually, philosophically, and theologically, Judaism from Hellenism. He is highlighting a notion that is emphasized uniquely by Jews in the classical world, that a good God of justice ruled the world, that everyone will be judged, and that the immortal soul, so central to the inviolability of the human being, will play a role in the resurrection that will allow this judgment to occur. The Talmudic attitude to Alexander in particular, and Greece in general, is complex. There's no question that the rabbis understood the greatness of Greek achievement. Yet at the same time, even if most of the rabbis had not visited Athens or viewed the Parthenon gleaming atop the Acropolis, they understood the ethos of a city that placed at its summit a temple to Athena, a pagan goddess. So many of Athens' intellectual breakthroughs, of course, occurred not at that site, but in the surrounding city, in its governmental gatherings, in the grove that was Plato's academy and, as we mentioned, in its agora, its marketplace. Nevertheless, the high point of the city of Athens, symbol of that city until today, is the Parthenon, which celebrated a pagan worldview that was very much in variance with biblical monotheism. As Ray Jonathan Sachs has put it, the Greeks believed in the holiness of beauty, whereas the Jews instead insisted upon the beauty of holiness. And as we discussed in our journey through the book of Proverbs, for all of Athens' achievements, the proclamations of Proverbs remain true that for Jews, the foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. And Judaism understood that in hitting upon this insight, they had exceeded Athens in wisdom. Interestingly, the most eloquent expression of this point was made not by a Jew, but by perhaps the best educated and most well-read individual in American history, John Quincy Adams, who also happens to be one of my favorite people in American history. While serving as American ambassador to the court of the Tsar, John Quincy wrote a series of letters about religion to his son in America, George Washington Adams. John Quincy focused specifically in one section on the aspects of biblical monotheism 
that are emphasized in our passage of Daniel. To his son, George Washington Adams, John Quincy wrote, quote, The existence of a creator, the immortality of the human soul, and the future state of retribution are therefore so perfectly congenial to natural reason when once discovered, or rather it is so impossible for natural reason to disbelieve them, that it would seem the light of natural reason would alone suffice for their discovery. But this conclusion would not be exact. Human reason may be sufficient to get an obscure glimpse at these sacred and important truths, but it cannot discover them in all their clearness. Adams added, The ideas of God entertained by all the most illustrious and most ingenious nations of antiquity were weak and absurd. And then he further added, The Greeks invented a poetical religion and adored men and women, virtues and vices, air, water, fire, and everything that a vivid imagination could personify. Almost all the Greek philosophers reasoned and meditated upon the nature of the gods, but scarcely any of them ever reflected enough even to imagine that there was but one God, and not one of them ever conceived of him as the creator of the world. End quote. In other words, John Quincy Adams is emphasizing that for all of Hellenism's achievements, and they were truly great, the profound theological insight of Judaism was not attained. Or as Adams further put it, quote, Thus far and no farther could human reason extend, but the first words of the Bible are, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. This blessed and sublime idea of God, the creator of the universe, this source of all human virtue and all human happiness, for which all the sages and philosophers of Greece and Rome groped in darkness and never found, is revealed in the first verse of the book of Genesis, end quote. Perhaps then, Daniel emphasizes Jewish theology and doctrine because he is preparing the Jews for a clash with Hellenism, the first case of religious persecution of the Jews. And he therefore seeks to steal the Jews in this ideological battle. To read Daniel today, then, is to think of the Hanukkah story and to ponder the endurance of Jewish ideas, the endurance of Jews, the endurance of Judaism. We may have previously mentioned how in November of 2018, there was a Thursday night New York El Al flight that took off late because of snow and then had to land in Athens so that those passengers who observed Shabbat could rush to an airport hotel, having missed the events that they were supposed to attend in Israel. At the time, there was all sorts of accusations and arguments over who is at fault for the plane taking off with Sabbath-observant Jews too late to reach Tel Aviv by Shabbat. That is not what I want to relitigate at this moment. What I wish to basically recall again is how the Jews that disembarked in Athens spent their Shabbat. The local Chabad in Athens arranged Sabbath for some 150 Jews. One of them, Jonathan Paley, described the experience of Jews from different backgrounds celebrating the Sabbath. Quote, it was a sight to behold, all of us together singing and dancing to welcome the Shabbat queen as one. No judgment, no labels, no barriers. We were all simply Jews. It was something. And he adds, we all understood one thing. What unites us is so much more powerful than what divides us, end quote. I read as well in another article that when these Jews arrived, the mikvah that was needed for the Jews of Athens was only half paid for. And by the time Shabbat concluded, the rest of the money had been raised, in pledges, of course. And all I could think about was, the Syrio-Greeks, as described by the book of Maccabees, chose the Sabbath as one of the focuses of their persecution. Similarly, the Romans had mocked the Jewish keeping of the Sabbath as impractical and unproductive. Imagine telling Antiochus or Hadrian that one day Jews from around the world would gather in Athens to mark Shabbat 
and then return together to a Jewish Jerusalem, a Jewish Jerusalem where today candles are kindled to mark the victory over Antiochus. Dr. Paley reports that as the Jews headed back to the airport after Shabbat, with Hanukkah two weeks away, they all broke out in the streets of Athens in a traditional Hanukkah song. Yivanim nikbitsu alai, azai bimei chashmanim, ufartu chomot migdalai, v'timu kol which roughly translated means the Greeks gathered to destroy us in the days of the Hasmoneans and they made breaches in the sacred sanctuary and rendered impure the temple oil. And from one remaining flask, a miracle was performed for the righteous. Or if you will, from one final flask, an enduring flame of Judaism was born. Hanukkah marks not only a miracle of oil, but the courage made manifest in Jewish resistance to pagan persecution and in the mysterious endurance of the Jewish spirit. That flame burns brightly still. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.